So, you know, several people have uh, spoken uh, to me recently, come to me, several young people asked me for advice on their love life, uh, on their romantic uh, situation. And I was honored by this, and I told them I would give them, the, you know, as much of the little wisdom that I have. Uh, but one of these young people in talking to me said, well, of course I was going to come to you, Pastor Sam, because you're the love doctor. And I laughed. Um, I laughed a very deep laugh when this young person said this because I, you know, because of these questions and things that have been going on, I've been thinking back to my, my history with women. And I, I want to tell you why I laughed so deeply there. Because when I think back, and I've, and I've really taken some time and thought, you know, when you've been married for 30 years, you, you tend to feel like, well, the spouse has always been there and it's always, that's all there was. But actually, when I think back, I realize there was, there was a long history uh, before I met my wife, uh, Mary Kay, and we got married. Uh, going back to the beginning, Betsy Dinello, who was the first girl that I just was head over heels in love with in, in Wilmington, Delaware. And I think her father was a congressman in Delaware, if I'm getting that right. But anyway, Betsy Dinello was just someone who was, to me, like that, the, the meaning of love. But I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to express my feelings with her. And this was kind of a pattern with me. I just, I, I, I was at a loss in her presence. One time she actually came up to me by the fence to talk to me. And I just turned and walked away. I just walked away from her, this, this love doctor here, uh, because I, I couldn't do it. Now you might say, well, you know, you should be excused um, you know, in that circumstance, because you were only in second grade, it's true. But it was a pattern. You know, when I, when I came to the point where I was able, you know, I was older and I was asking girls out, I had, well, I had a number of girls who just said no to me, flat out. Uh, just no, was what they said. I asked Maddie Einbinder out, and I made the mistake there of calling her on the Sabbath um, because I didn't know that she was actually from an Orthodox Jewish family and they don't talk on the phone on the Sabbath. So that was off to a great start. Um, but, you know, she just said no, I think probably at the direction of her father. But just no, you know, Linda Hubka, just no. Allison Mahan, just no. Robin Rebrick, just no. The love doctor here, you know. And, you know, it wasn't like these women, these young women, it wasn't like there was a hesitation in their voice when they said no. Um, it, was, it was just no. <laughs> Smart girls. That's all I can say. Smart girls. When there was a girl who finally said yes to me, the very lovely and lively Susan Friedman, she, she, she was actually one who did say yes to me. Um, I, I was at a complete loss uh, when she said yes. I just kind of ran out of the room. And, you know, again, the next day in school, I just passed by her. I didn't even say hello because I still couldn't believe that she had said yes 
uh, to me. And she figured out pretty quickly, Susan did, that the, what this was going to be like. So she came to me uh, and said, you know, Sam, this is not going to work out. And she was right. She was right. So, you know, there are other similar disasters uh, like that. And um, there was one actual real relationship, uh, kind of main one that I had uh, during that time with Emily Recknitz, the, just a wonderful girl, Emily Recknitz in, in New Jersey. And um, I, was, I was able to maintain some semblance of being a boyfriend for a few years, um, although I treated her badly. I did not treat her well at all. Um, and I remember um, talking to her father about it afterwards, and uh, he, he was a kind guy. He said, you know, when you're young, you just bounce back from these things. It's, it's not serious because that's, you know, one of the benefits of youth. You know, these things don't affect you deeply. You know, and he was a nice guy, but he was completely wrong <laughs> about that. Because I hurt her, you know, I hurt her. Not, you know, in the times, there, there was this one time where, you know, there were times when I went behind her back uh, that were hurtful with other girls. But there was one time where I got another girl, Julie Vatter, to go out with me at the same time as I was going out with Emily. Uh, at the same time, I actually put these girls through that. They knew that about it, that they, I was going out with the other one. Um, I mean, I was just awful. I was just terrible. I mean, I regret these things about, uh, some of the things I most regret about my life here uh, are these things. This is, this is the love doctor standing in front of you. Um, in fact, this is why I really became a Christian. I think that God at this point looked down at me and said, this guy is going to do so much damage <laughs> to the people around him that I need to interrupt his life at this point, or it's going to get really ugly. And that was the trajectory I was on. <sighs> and then from my perspective, it's really the reason I became a Christian, because it was at that point that I, I began to have the real difficulty in seeing myself as a good guy. You know, I, we like to carry around this idea that, you know, we're basically a good person. It was becoming increasingly difficult, nigh impossible, for me to see myself as a good person, basically because of how I was treating women. Uh, so that kind of led to a great crisis inside of me, and that's why I called out to the Lord. And I did call out to the Lord. And uh, he changed me. You know, sometimes you hear people say, God does not exist. I have a real hard time believing that. Because I can tell you, I knew what my heart was like before I called on the name of Christ. And I knew what it was like after. And it was a change, friends. You know, it wasn't just things maybe that were different that I was doing in front of people. It was when I was alone by myself, I realized I was, I was starting to want things, different things. And there is nothing on this earth to account for that. I just cannot account for that change that I had no uh, ability to make in myself, and yet it was happening. So you might feel like, okay, well, at least that part was over. You are a Christian now. Things with women would be really good. Nah, <laughs> no. You know, there was a series of women, a series of young women, 
poor young women, who um, I thought I was helping them to Christ, you know, and taking them to church and leading them on and bringing them, bringing them Christ. That's what I thought was going on. They thought we were dating. Now, you might hear that and you think, he's exaggerating there. That can't really, that can't really happen, can it? Yes, it absolutely can happen. Several times it can happen. If you have a guy who is just not able to steward a, a young woman's feelings, um, it's, it's, I'll tell you, it certainly can happen. Boy, oh boy, boy, oh boy. But at least I was doing less damage uh, in the process as things went on. Um, God started saving me from big mistakes. There was a, a, a young woman who invited me over to her house. Would have, been a, would have been a disaster, but that one day, my car wouldn't start. And I've never been able to figure out why. It was only on that day, but my car wouldn't start. Couldn't go over there. So that didn't happen, thankfully. But I was still in this position of just not being able to, to be a man towards a woman. You know, there was the, the, the lovely Lisa Russo up in Connecticut. And she was actually willing, again, another woman, strangely enough, who was willing to say yes to me. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't, I just, I wasn't able to be a man for her. Um, and so that was over before it began. She ended up with a great guy, uh, Danny Peruccio, I think his name was. And I, I really was happy, actually, about that because he, he was someone who I thought, from where I was standing, could be a real man for her. So on and on and on it went until I was one time dating the lovely uh, Isabel from Long Island. Uh, just a, a terrific girl, a great girl. And, um, while I was dating her, though, I met Mary Kay. Now, I know you've been, some of you have been sitting there praying for Mary Kay to show up in this uh, story, and, and she did. And when she did, I broke up with Isabel because I had in front of me a woman who, who could look past who I was and see who I could be. And we got married. But I don't really look at this history and see Love Doctor. Um, this morning, what I want to do with you is actually turn towards someone that we can really look at as a love doctor, somebody who really can teach us about romance in our lives, relationships in our lives. And that teacher is found in the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon. So please, wherever you are, if you're listening to me, watching me, I want to ask you if you would stand as I'm going to read from the scriptures. And actually, I'm going to start in 1 Kings 11. Um, and I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Kings 11, and then I'm going to read the beginning of the Song of Songs, the first few verses there, and then I'm going to read the end of the Song of Songs, and I'll make that clear a little later why I'm doing that. If you want this all in one place, there's a worship guide that you can get um, where you're watching this live stream. You can, you can tap on a link there to get a worship guide that has all of the text laid out there for you, as well as another resource I'll be using in the sermon, so that might be good to do. Uh, but if you're just reading your own Bible, what I'm reading is 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3, 
and then Song of Songs, one through three, one, one through three, and then Song of Songs, eight, four through seven, and 10 through 14. So again, 1 Kings 11, chapter one. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Now, Song of Songs, chapter 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. To the end of the book, chapter 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir up, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she bore you. She who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death and jealousy fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourselves comfortable here as we open this book. I'll tell you, I've really been enjoying Pastor Darren preaching on this book, opening this book up in very beneficial ways for us, showing us ways of reading this book. I found it very helpful. I hope you have also really enjoyed it. I want to add some, something to what he has been saying here this morning. And I want to talk about interpreting the book for us. And the key, the overall book for us, and for, for the most part this morning, and the key to interpreting the book is to recognize the singer of the song. And that takes us to chapter 1, verse 1, the very, the very beginning opening verse of this song. 
which tells us a great deal. It says, this is the song of songs, or really just the song of songs, which is of Solomon, which is of Solomon. Now, if we're going to believe that as Holy Scripture, if we're going to take that seriously, it drives us inevitably, I think, to a certain interpretation of the book, because there are really only two possibilities Scholars have these kind of complicated theories, but it really, what, what seems to be plausible and uh, what it all boils down to is, is one of two possibilities. When it says, this, is of, this song is of Solomon, it's either written by Solomon or it's about Solomon, right? It's either written by him or it's about. It's one of those two possibilities. And as we look at it, we can see, I think, uh, pretty easily, it's not written by Solomon. Why do I say that? Well, you can look at different things. For one, the Hebrew is, is it's not a classical Hebrew. The book isn't written in a, in a classical Hebrew. Uh, it's, it's more of a, what we could call a colloquial Hebrew. There are, there are a number of loan words. Not the kind of Hebrew that would be, uh, would be present in the court uh, of the king. But there are other things, you know, you, you notice as you read through, the song, read through the song that obviously the woman uh, is prominent uh, in, certainly she speaks more than half the time in the book, whereas the man character only speaks something around a third of the book. And it's not just the content. Uh, you can tell that what you're getting here is the woman's experience, right? This this is really her journey. You're getting what she's feeling, the inner life, much less, you hardly get that at all in the man. You know, it's kind of like, like these romantic comedies. You know, in rom-coms, like the classic rom-com, the guy is kind of a cardboard character a little bit, you know, and it's like he's there to show up to wear L.L. Bean uh, flannel shirts and Timberline work boots and you know, look admiringly at her and, and say a few things. He's, his character is really developed. He's waiting around till an appropriate time to kiss her, right? That's your basic rom-com. Well, this is not unrelated to some elements we see in the Song of Solomon, right? The guy, it's, you're definitely not getting the guy's inner life, but you are getting hers. This is her journey. This is her voice. And, you know, so what we're drawn to we're realizing is this is really, a wor- this is the Song of the Woman, and, you know, women, Israelite women could write things, you know, Jezebel writes things and Esther writes things, so they could write. And they, they actually have a history in the scriptures of composing songs, right? Songs of lament, songs of, of victory, songs of the harvest. And you can go and read these songs in the scriptures. There's Miriam who has a song, right? And, and Hannah uh, has a song and Deborah, right? And Judges and in the New Testament and Mary, uh, writes these songs. So this is not without precedent. Uh, what we do have here is this work of the woman. But, but, but really the, the, crucial, the crucial point uh, that helps us see this is this really can't be a work of Solomon is that the themes that the book preaches into which we are about to get, if Solomon wrote them, they would, they, it would have been too hypocritical for this book to have ended up in the canon. If Solomon had actually wrote the things that are being preached in this book, it it just would have been uh, so hypocritical. It never would have made it into the canon of Holy Scripture, which it did actually early on. 
Later, there was problems with it, but early on, it was very accepted in the scriptures. <clears throat> so that's my case for it. It's not by Solomon. If it's not by Solomon, ergo, it is about Solomon. And if this is, an, if this is a song about Solomon, um, it drives us to a certain understanding about what's going on here. And that's why his name, you notice, is placed. It really is about Solomon. His name is placed kind of very carefully in the book, twice at the beginning, twice at the end, and then three times in the heart of the book, which is the wedding of chapter 3. And so what we have here is the work of this Shulamite bride. She's called the Shulamite in chapter 6. That's where we get the name. This Shulamite bride whose wedding to Solomon and consummation is taking place in chapter 3. Well, that creates a problem. If that's what's going on in the book, that creates a problem. And you can feel the problem, can't you? The song, when we look at it, it exalts marital love. This, this, this book exalts exclusively committed, lifelong, intergendered marital love. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. It's a repeated chorus throughout the book, right? You know that if you've been reading it. The word bride, <coughs> excuse me, the word bride is, is used six times in the book. You know, <coughs> that's not about free love, friends. When you use the word bride, it implies a marriage, right? A wedding and a marriage. And if you even look at how the woman is pictured, it's not her just like, oh, it's just about the physical act. It's just about this uh, lovemaking. No, you, you look at how she's pictured in the book. She is what? A, a locked room, right? A secured garden, a sealed fountain, a walled tower until she's opened to a husband. So even these phrases that might seem kind of weird, you know, we, we, we read here in chapter 8 where she's talking about wanting to go to where, under the apple tree, where, where your mother bore you. And, you know, Pastor Darren was talking the other week about how, you know, it was really weird, you know, this description that, you know, I want to go to where I want you to, I want to bring you. She wants to bring her beloved to where her mother conceived her. And Darren was saying, boy, that's weird. Actually, it's not weird. It's really the expression of an intensely emotional person who is trying to say, I want this to have its full meaning. This physical act that we're doing, I don't want it just to be about the physical act. It's not about the physical act. It's about you coming into my family. It's about my coming into your family. I'm coming to you under the apple tree. You're coming into my, where my mother conceived me. And this is somebody who feels things intensely. And she says, I want this. I want all of this. I want this to be about family. I want this to be about our heritage. It's not just about the physical act itself. The physical act, this act of love, is something that brings forth another out of that love. Just like my mother conceived me. You see what she's calling for? She's calling for this to be about a multi-generational, committed, solely, solely, deeply permanent, exclusive love. So that's what the book is preaching. 
But that was not the situation historically, was it? That's why we started in 1 Kings 11, right? That was not the situation of this relationship. It couldn't have been. Solomon has these, these 700 wives, 300 concubines, it says. Now, even if we don't understand everything about ancient Hebrew numbering, and sometimes I wonder if we do, sometimes I wonder perhaps we don't, that's a lot. Whatever it was, it was a large amount. That's what's going on here. And this is what unimaginable wealth will do to a man. It did it to Solomon. And so what's going on here? The book is preaching one thing. We're seeing another thing historically. What is it? And that, friends, is what drives us to the message of the book and really opens up the book for all of us, I think. You know, there's one more thing to bring this forward and, and for us to see it. The, the message of the real message of the book. And that is the way the book is structured. You know, I've spoken to you in the past here at Ironworks Church about the Hebrew poetics, how ancient Hebrew authors often used parallelism and, and inclusio and these different elements, light warts, uh, to, to bring out the themes of what they're writing about, to help us navigate their writings. And, and this is a song that is formed in what I've explained before as a chiasm. That you remember where the last thing is, repeats or, or continues the theme of the first thing. The second to last thing, the second thing. And I have included in your worship guide just a basic outline. This is for your own reading. And, you know, scholars can argue about the exact boundaries, but just to show you there's a basic chiastic structure to this song. And you can locate kind of what level you are in the chiasm all the way to the center pivot, which in this case is the, the wedding and the consummation of that wedding. And so when you look at those elements, um, it creates kind of levels that highlight the themes of the book. It highlights the themes that the author is, is, is focusing on for us. And we can see that the book is not chronological. That's a mistake sometimes that people make in reading it. This is not a chronology. There are flashbacks and forwards and all different kinds of time settings. It's not chronological, but it's definitely structured. And this structure highlights the dark parts of the song because what we see repeated are, are tensions and dark parts in the experience of this woman in her journey. Where do we see that? Well, for example, if you look at that first level of the chaos in the beginning and the end, some of which we read, she starts talking about her own vineyard. What's her own vineyard? It's her own body. Her body is the vineyard into which she is inviting her husband, right? And she has this one beautiful vineyard. You contrast that with chapter 8 at the end where it talks about Solomon's vineyard complex. And where is it? It's at Baal Hermon. Baal Haman, excuse me, chapter, chapter 8, verse 11. You say that Solomon's vineyard is at Baal Haman. Let me translate that phrase for you. It, it is husband of a, of a crowd. That's what Baal Haman literally means, lord or husband of a, of a crowd, of a, of, a, of a multitude. And that's Solomon's vineyard. Okay, you have the center wedding a drama, right? And around that wedding, on either side, there's a level of the chiasm that are, that's, that are the woman's dreams. 
That's what, she, what happens when she falls asleep. This is what she dreams. And there's one on either side, right? And they both have the same theme. What's the theme? She can't find him, right? He's not there for her when he, she needs him to be. What's being talked about there? You know, in your dreams, when you go to sleep, that's where your tensions come out, right? That's where the things you're afraid of, the ways in which you are insecure come out. And that's what's happening with her. Her dreams, she, he's not there. Can't find him. Why? Because he's, he's with the harem. He's with someone else in the harem. And so in both of those dreams, she adjures the daughters of Jerusalem. What does she say? Awaken not love. We see it in the passage we read at the end in chapter 8 as well. She keeps saying, Awaken not love, O daughters of Jerusalem. Who are the daughters of Jerusalem? They are the ones Solomon has brought to be in his harem. So she's adjuring. She's saying to them, Awaken not love in him. And when you find him, direct him to me. That's what her, she's crying out for. And so there are these foxes that are spoiling the vineyard. Um, in chapter 2, we read about, right? And Pastor Darren did a great job bringing that out. What are the foxes that spoil the vineyard? There are those things that mess up true love as it was meant to be, as God meant it to be, as, as the Shulamite bride preaches us, it should be this exclusive, lifelong, possessive bond of, of, of affection and romance. That's true love as it should be. And what are the foxes, the things that mess it up? In her case, what are the foxes? It's the other women in the harem. It's his harem that he is with. That's why right after she says that about the foxes spoiling the vineyard, next verse I am my beloved's, and he is mine. She makes her plea. So you see that this is the interpretive key for us. I think that we're driven to by the logic of the book and the historical circumstances. That this woman, she's really a hero, the hero of the book, because she will not give up on the vision for what she knows love should be. She's not going to give up on what it should be like even though she's in a romance that is not all it should be. Because, you know, in that situation, you know what the temptation is. When the foxes spoil the vineyard is to, is to settle for the arrangement, settle for just an arrangement. If you're in that situation, you say, okay, I will take the luxury for the loss of true love. I will do that. You know, and it's hard for us to imagine this unimaginable wealth, <laughs> It's unimaginable. The, the, the wealth of, of Solomon is, is just incredible. It's been lost to history now. But you want to get a good picture of it, actually? If you're ever in Istanbul, you can visit the Top Kapa Palace. It's one of the palaces of the Pashas in the Ottoman Empire. And you can see the life of a harem in that palace. It gives you a good picture of what it was like. It's just, just incredible luxury that you would be living in. And yet... You'd have, to, you'd have to have it as an arrangement. And the Shulamite bride is not going to do that. This is her message. When things were not all that they should be, she's crying out continually to him. Chapter 8, verse 6, right? Seal up our love. 
be exclusively devoted to her, she says. Her jealousy is as cruel as the grave. True love, as we've described it here, she recognizes, and this is what helps, this is what allows her to do it, to maintain that vision. She sees that also, chapter 8, verse 6, it's the flame of the Lord. This, this is coming from the Lord himself. And this is what allows her to not give up on the vision for what should be. So friends, this is the true love doctor. This is the one who can teach us about our romances when we are not in, when we are in the less than ideal situations that we find ourselves in love. It opens up the book for us. Whatever your situation is, maybe you are single uh, and you're fed up with love, or maybe you're divorced and you're like, you're done. You're like giving up on it. What is the Shulamite bride calling to you? What is she calling out to you? Well, she's saying, you can't, you can't devolve into cynicism about love. You mustn't. You mustn't go there, even though that's a temptation. You know, you don't, you don't have to be married. If you don't want to be married, you don't have to be married. That's fine. But you do have to address bitterness. There's not one shred of bitterness in this love poem, in this song. And she's calling you to still believe in true love, even if you decide it's not for you to still believe in it. You know, one of the commentators in this book, they say a lot of different things, but there's one commentator, at one point he said, I thought he really got it right here, Ian Duguid, in his commentary, he put it this way. Duguid says this, quote, even if we feel that such a relationship could never be ours, we should wish with every fiber of our being that it might be. And it will be because it's the flame of the Lord. If you're single and maybe you're not giving up on love, but you are desperate for this kind of love. What is the Shulamite bride saying to you? She's saying, this is the flame of the Lord. It is right for you to call out for this love. It is right for you to go for these kinds of standards, these biblical standards that she's talking about. Not maybe our standards or peculiar standards that we have, but the biblical standards, this lifelong, this exclusive commitment, this absolute possessive love. She said, yes, you should be calling out for that in your life. And you should know this is, this is the flame of the Lord. Even if you do not taste it in a, in a spouse in this life, you will get it. The Shulamite bride is telling us none of us will miss out on a bridal procession because this is the flame of the Lord. And this is to where, where we are heading to this love, to understand it in God himself. And we'll explore that in the weeks to come. Maybe you are listening and watching here and you, your struggle is, is with same-sex attraction. Maybe you have desires inside of you that go against this. And despite a thousand voices screaming at you that love is love and just go with a monogendered relationship and just flow with it, you know this is not how it should be. You know that this is off. What is the call of the Shulamite bride to you? It is this. It's the same call. Do not give up on what love should be. Don't do it. 
don't surrender, like the culture says. The culture says, oh, just, just be gay. Because you should know that in Jesus Christ, you can determine yourself differently. I say that because I know men and women have worked with men and women who have done that. You will not hear their stories because it's, it's not allowed in the media. You just won't get it. But those stories are there. And men and women, I, and I just want to say this to you, even though people are going to gnash their teeth at me for saying this, I need to say it. Your same-sex attraction does not mean intergendered marriage is impossible for you. Not saying it's a short journey. It's a journey. But the journey begins with confessing with the Shulamite bride, I will not give up on what God tells me love should be. Whatever our situation, of course, many of us listening here today are married, right? And in marriage, you know, you come to places of discontentment. Maybe they're serious issues, maybe they're not so serious issues, but you come to those moments, these times of like, why do I have to deal with this? I shouldn't have to deal with this. You, you, have a, you, have a, you understand that things are not the way they should be. They're less than what they should be in this relationship. What is the Shulamite bride's call to you? Her call is to not sink into cynicism about the love that you have. You know, really, it's the same call for all of us to not grow cynical about true love about what you're doing and what your, what your spouse is doing. I do need to say that there are times when a marriage should end. The Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ both affirm that. They're kind of strict about it, but there are times when a relationship should end. So we do need to recognize that. But even in that, we should not be giving up on what true love should be. Maybe it's because of what true love should be. But unless you're in that serious situation, there are countless moments in your marriage where you need to hear this call and believe that the true love between you is real. It's still there. It's something that you can feed. If you don't grow cynical about love, if you don't you know, start to allow yourself to look across the aisle and say, why don't I have a wife like that? Or why don't I have a husband like that? What are you doing? You're, you're giving up on the true love that is between you. The struggle of our lives, friends, is with covetousness. That's the struggle against which all of our lives go. And this is the Shulamite bride. She's going to teach us as we go on in these coming weeks. She's going to tell us how we can, we can do that. We can sustain that vision, how to push through. Because whatever your situation is, <laughs> probably wasn't as bad as hers. <laughs> Hers was probably worse. You know? And listen to her call. Listen to her hold forth this vision. You know, whatever it is, if it's pornography, what's pornography? You know what pornography use is? It's, it's, it's a giving up on a belief in true love. That's what pornography use is. And that's the same call if that is your struggle. The Shulamite bride is calling to you to say there is, difference and you know there's a different way again not a short journey out but it starts with with not failing to believe in love the beloved that she's preaching do you see how this love doctor is calling to us whatever your situation whatever is is your romance that is less than it should be 
She's calling, just like she called, it seems, to Solomon. Did Solomon listen? Did Solomon get it? You know, you go through this song, and if you go through the song with this view, you can see different points when the man speaks where it seems like he might be getting it. And um, I don't have time to go through them, but chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 8, there are moments where he's like, you're the one and only. There are, you know, even he, he brings up, there's 60 queens. There are, there are 80 concubines at that point. And yet, your, your, your spice is only one. She awakens him under the apple tree. There are these hints of it. I wish I could say, in the end, he got it. I, I can't say that. We don't have the historical evidence to say that as she looked at him and looked beyond what he was to what he could be, that he became what he could be. I, I wish I could tell you that, but we do not have the historical evidence for it. It was a hard life. And this is where we find the, the deep, deep meaning of the book. You know, a lot of people look at this book and they say, I, I don't know what to do with it. The church stayed away from it a lot of times because they were like, obviously, this is supposed to be about marriage. And marriage, we know, is about Christ and the church. But the New Testament doesn't use the book this way. You don't find the New Testament using a book like, oh, okay, Song of Solomon, Christ and the church. Because they looked at Solomon and they said, he's not a type of Christ. <laughs> He's the opposite of Christ. He's not faithful. So they didn't know what to do with the book. You know what they were missing? The real hero. The real one who shows us Christ is the Shulamite bride. She's the one who shows us faithfulness in the, in the face of, of absolute abject unfaithfulness. That's why it says in chapter 4, she is the well of living water. And that's the key to understanding this book. She's the one who's showing us the real love that comes from God. Do you know, when Jesus Christ was in a situation in his life, when things were at the worst, things were most not what they should be, is when he was, we just celebrated Easter, we just celebrated this, he was carrying his cross to be crucified himself. When he was being faithful and things were just not as they should be, in the love that he was bringing. What happens? He's followed by a group of women who start crying, weeping for him for what's going on. He turns around, he addresses him. Do you know what he calls them? The very term that the Shulamite bride adjures with, he adjures them. He says, daughters of Jerusalem. You read about this in Luke 23. Daughters of Jerusalem, he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Because if this is what happens when the wood is green, what's going to happen when the wood is dry? What's he saying there? He's saying, do you understand? If Jerusalem rejects my love, I'm the one who's bringing you true love. What you're seeing upon me now is the judgment of God. I'm taking on the judgment of God. If Jerusalem rejects this love, it's going to be bad because this judgment will come upon your city daughters of Jerusalem, and you'll feel it. You'll experience the judgment. This is the love of Christ. He was the one who bore with his beloved people when we uh, are less than faithful. 
And he went through the worst loss of love so that we could have always true love in our lives. The very flame of the Lord. The very thing that changed me when I could not love a woman. He went through that so that I could have that love. And we can have the promise and assurance of that love in him. Amen. Amen. That is our beginning. I invite you to come back and join us again as we explore more of what the Shulamite Bride has to teach us in this book and build upon what we've learned so far. Um, what we're going to do now, if you want to come um, and celebrate communion, I'm going to bring a communion out there. Uh, pastors of this church have been vaccinated, just so you know. I'm going to wear a mask if it'll just in case it might make people feel more comfortable. But um, we're going to be out there for you who would like to come now. Uh, in a few minutes, I'll be serving communion out there for those who wish. Uh, but in the meantime, or if, if you're not coming, I want you to take this love with you. Uh, I think I'll dismiss us now uh, with a benediction. I hope that we can all hear the call of the Shulamite bride in this. And now, may the love which is as strong as death, the flame of the Lord, keep your hearts and minds. Thanks be to God. Go forth, hold forth the truth about love. Amen. God bless you.